All right, we are continuing conversations with Yogananda. We are number 240. Time passes. Um, we are doing, you know, classes. I leave again on the 20th of September. So whatever that means. I believe, though, that September 12th must be a Tuesday. Can anybody guess that? So that we'll, we'll have that program of Swami's anniversary. So it's only going to be three or four classes in this cycle, but we'll get them in. Okay. 240. All right. The Master, like every great Master, viewed sex as one of the three great delusions. The other two, he said, are money and alcohol. Along with alcohol, he would certainly have included hallucinogenic drugs had they been as popular in his day as they became later. Somebody wants to make sure no one thinks that they're going to get an exception here. Sex, he said, is a delusion because of its power to draw people into the hope of fulfillment outside themselves. Where devotees are concerned, many are taken away from the spiritual path by sexual desire. To the master, however, everything, including every spiritual precept, is relative in the sense of directional. Nothing except God is absolute. Like St. Paul, he would have liked to see all live a life of dedication to God alone, but he was realistic and work with the world as it is and with people as they are. He had not been sent to serve a society of monks or hermits. The world he served included people at every stage of life. His mission, in fact, was to uplift society as a whole and not only a handful of disciples. Obviously, even sincere seekers could not be realistically expected to withdraw into monasteries. He was supportive toward all who sought God like Lahiri Mahashaya, he saw it as his mission to help all who humbly asked for help in their divine quest. <clears throat> he himself loved the monastic life, but he did not approve of monastic arrogance. He wrote scathingly, in fact, of sadhus, India's holy men who despised as materialists those very people who gave them the food they ate. As it happened, most of Master's highly advanced disciples either were or had been married. First, in importance, as he saw it, were the qualities of inner non-attachment. Moreover, he did not condemn the natural attraction that exists between men and women. Rather, he strove to purify it, so that each might learn to see God in the other. Neither is better than the other, he insisted. They are simply different. Physical attraction between the sexes should be purified eventually to the desire for union with God alone even in marriage then, provided it is a truly spiritual union. The ultimate goal should be divine union. Meanwhile, he urged everyone to see in all the one infinite beloved. Then there's two paragraphs about Gyanamata, which we'll come back to in a minute. You know, this, um, you know, this whole aspect of the teaching, we've been going through a long section here where he's been advising the monks and talking about this whole thing. Swamiji once said, in a context, something I was reading, was of course what I've been reading recently. He was talking about some of the teachings of Lahiri Mahashaya about how to overcome sexual desire. And Swami sort of lamented, he said, I wish I could talk more freely about these things. He said, after all, it's just the body. 
but he said he just didn't feel in our society that he could, you know, speak impersonally and frankly about sexual matters in the kind of way that yogis could talk to each other, just about it being just one more dimension of life that we're all working with. So it, it is difficult um, for people to focus in clearly without getting deflected by all of the vibrations that go on around it. So it's, but it's helpful to be able to see it all in proportion is neither uh, more nor less powerful an issue than it actually is. Um, because I had such a long time in seclusion recently, you, you see everything, you stand back from everything quite a lot. And this sort of, and also I was working a lot through um, the, the, the lawsuit that was filed against Ananda, you know, about sexual misconduct and all of that. So I was sort of dealing with that whole subject a lot um, in, a, in a very impersonal way. And the reason that the masters talk so much about, I mean, the reason that sex is elevated to the level of being a, a major delusion, like money and alcohol, is just that fundamental dis-ease that it creates within you. I was thinking back to being 13 years old when all of that energy first begins to come up in you and just how, um, how confused the mind becomes with this... The only way you could, I, I could think of it and I could feel it is there's this constant pull to go off-center. You know, this constant looking around outside. Swami was talking about how girls, young girls, are not quite as driven as young boys are by the sheer physicality of it, but they become obsessively interested in boys. That was how he was talking about it. And said he, he, in fact, he was talking about meeting a woman who was actually in her, her 40s or 50s, but he said her demeanor was still like a high school or a junior high school girl with her constant distraction. And he was sort of tracing that back, that that's where it all begins is that you have this thought in your mind that you need something that you don't already have. And yet the other side of it is we do have this deep longing for a fulfillment that we don't have and that fulfillment is the divine but it also, there's this really deep longing to be loved and for intimacy and to be sort of understood and to, to have and, and just to make it more complicated, Master actually really does talk about soulmates, about there just there being an actual um, pair to you. I was I was trying to meditate on the difference between being compelled outward by romantic longing or sexual um, energy, and being calmly centered in yourself until the soulmate comes to you or what it is like to receive the love of God instead of going out and questing for human love and you know in a society like ours the whole world is becoming unfortunately very much like the West um, where not only is um, human love deified but it's absolutely um, gross I mean, it's just in its grossest possible form, its most selfish possible form. You know, um, there's a lot of talk these days about President Trump and concern about his qualifications to be a president and so on like that. 
But to my mind, he, I just, Swamiji says, a country gets the leader that it deserves, that the leader reflects the consciousness of the people rather than creating it. And the consciousness that he reflects is a very simple one. If I want it, why shouldn't I have it? You know, and what difference does it make what means I use to get it? If I want it, I should have it. And a great many people in this country are completely committed to that same point of view, whatever their political position is. Some of them may have a, a more clearly defined moral standard, but many don't. Many people in high position really don't. And so he's just the, the most blatant, un, un, uh, uh, unembarrassed example. If I want it, why shouldn't I just take it? But it's, it, that's, the, that's the issue. It's not left, right, or center politically. It's just that sheer compelling desire and sexual energy is the place where it really begins because it unsettles you so much from yourself. And it's also, it's a desire that can't be fulfilled by yourself, you know? So, so you, you just get embroiled in this whole world outside you. It's, I think it's very hard for us even to imagine, you know, what it would be like to be completely free of that. Although all the masters tell us, once the illusion is broken... Swami said that himself. He said, Master always told me, once the illusion was broken, it's incomprehensible to you. I mean, that's a wonderful thing to meditate on. Just like, what would it be if there was just, if this was not only not compelling, but incomprehensible? And then just what, what peace you would be in. That doesn't mean you would even necessarily be a monastic, but you would at least be at peace. And whatever, whatever would come into your life after that would be drawn into your life instead of chased, which would be such a different kind of energy. But of course, he, Swami writes in here immediately that you can't just be an avatar to the people who are already free. <laughs> and that was even Lahiri's conversation with Babaji. Babaji said, teach this Kriya to those who are willing to renounce the whole world in order to have the spiritual life. And Lahiri basically said, well, I guess I'm not going to be very busy. <laughs> You know, I won't have really much to do, sir. He said, lots of people are bound by delusion, but they're very sincere in their desire to get free of it. So humbly ask for help. And then, he says, it's directional. And, and that's why we don't have a, um, a judgmental moral code within our reality. And also, as Swamiji says, this age is just so chaotic. You know, he said to me in, in one context, you know, as, as in principle, people living together before they're married, he said, is really not such a good idea. But he said, it's such a restless age. He said that people, it's better for them to settle down at all for, than for them to just be completely without roots. And uh, sexuality itself, it's just directional. And people won't. The good news about our present reality is that everybody gets to find out for themselves, which is the good news and the bad news. I mean, I said to a gentleman who's in his late 20s now um, that, you know, the good news for your generation is you have absolutely no moral standards. And so as a result, whatever you actually come to will be genuinely your own because there's nothing in our society or culture that actually guides you according to any high principles anymore. And it's extremely difficult in this age to hold to high principles if you're not in an ashram environment, which, thank you God, we are. But even within Ananda, it's, it's still a bit 
it's unstable. Swamiji said it'll be several generations before it stabilizes. He said, until we can raise a, a, a generation or two of young people who have a proper understanding of sexuality and have the capacity to exercise sexual self-control, you not merely be told that there ought to, but are raised in such a way that they really know what to do with that energy, he said, it'll just continue like it is. And this is just one of these things that happens, and we have to not take it too seriously. So here we are. Okay. Any questions or comments on that? But the monastic life is... He himself loved the monastic life, speaking of master. It's a very interesting phrase. Master loved the monastic life. You know, just the freedom of it, the simplicity of it, the lack of complicating karmas. You know, you, when you think of it, when you really think of it, you're born into this world, you have one objective, and that objective is to realize God. And what we do is we get so interested in getting married, and then we get interested in having children, and then those children have children, and then those children marry, and then they bring in other families. And before you know it, you are completely embroiled in this huge network of obligatory relationships, some of which are uplifting, and many of which are not. And for, if you've never lived a monastic life at any stage of your life, you don't really, you may not really appreciate the marvelous simplicity of it and the marvelous uh, freedom of not even having your own gender, ideally. It just, you just lose. When, you, when you're not in relationship to the opposite, it's, it's much easier to lose a sense of self. I mean, it was a small thing, but during my eight weeks of seclusion. I never like mirrors anyway. I don't like to go in the bathroom and have a, an eight-foot display of myself. It's just so tiresome. So this little house that I was staying in had like this four-foot mirror, half the wall in the bathroom. and It just occurred to me that I didn't have to see myself every day. So I had a big piece of bubble wrap, which I just put over it. And then I just stuck some pictures of the masters up there, which I had never thought to do. You know, I covered all the mirrors in my house too. That when in in Judaism, when somebody dies and you're you're sitting shiv, which is the mourning period, you cover all your mirrors. So all my Jewish friends asked me, "Am I mourning when they, you know see all my mirrors covered?" No, it's just like I can't think of a good reason why I would want to see my face just on a random regular basis. <laughs> but it's not really that I object to my face. It's it's really very interesting. If you don't see your own reflection, you don't think about having a body as much. Every time you see your own reflection, it's not just a question of whether I look nice and my hair looks good or anything like that. It's just there I am. And it was very interesting to me because I was so solitary for eight weeks. I didn't t talk or interact, and I covered the mirror. And, uh, and it didn't, I, mean, I didn't even have to peek because who cared, you know. At home I have a little mirror because I have to come out and um, not be offensive. And then I'm immortalized on film, so even, you know, it's just... But there I didn't even have to do that. And it was, it was I got into that wonderful feeling of just forgetting. You know, there, was, there didn't happen to be any windows or anything. There's no reflection. You never see it. It's really, it's a great practice. Because your body's just going to age all by itself anyway. You don't have to watch it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> anyway... So, where was I? Oh, they were talking about the monastic life. Um, about the, you know, it's also the, the, the other side of it. The monastic life just creates this, um, when you don't have any responsibility for anyone else, sometimes 
people use responsibility for other people to justify behavior. Well, I'm doing it for my wife. I'm doing it for my children. You know, I wouldn't be like this except that I have to think about my children. And sometimes it justifies selfishness that they would be hard put to justify. But most of the time it's just dharma. You do have responsibility. When Swamiji was establishing the Naya Swami order and the Tiagi aspect of it, which is the essentially the brahmachari for married couples part of it, meaning the novice. The novice Naya Swami is, the, is Tiagi for married couples. But he had to say, you can't be a Tiagi if you're raising children. And his words were, because you have to have the relationship you have with your children has to be more personal than is appropriate for Tiagi. Which is a very interesting thing to contemplate. Plus, you don't have the freedom to declare what your karmic trajectory is. Because if your children have a demand on you, that is your dharma. You, your own karma is gone. You know, the, the, the parent, the, the child eats the parent. I mean, there's all these myths and stories that are all described like that, where the child is born and the child then consumes the parents. But the child does consume the parent. Uh, people have very romantic and wrong ideas about parenting. It's a complete self-sacrifice, so therefore it's a path to sainthood. But monasticism frees you from all of that, so there's just this capacity to just have it just be you and God. And, and everything gets, everything gets uh, stark. It, gets, it goes into black and white, because there's no... Uh, you don't have wiggle room. It just either is or it isn't. It's very marvelous. So, but then he also talked about this, the sadhus who were very arrogant about their monasticism. You see, every path, every single path has its downside. And the, 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 what's been happening more recently, recently meaning centuries, is that this arrogance, we're, we're monastics and you poor saps are just householders. And that's why I think an autobiography of a yogi master wrote um, the householder path provided that the individual can do it with mental detachment is actually a higher path than monasticism. Meaning, because one is so secure in one's consciousness, one does not have to protect it. That's how Swami talked about Master himself was so secure in his divine realization that he could be completely at ease with people. Whereas Swami used as an example Ramana Maharshi, who was also a great soul, but not as secure in his spirituality as Master was, so he was very austere. He had to hold himself away from the world to a very large extent, but Master didn't have to because his realization was so complete and so long-standing. Now, what the nuances of all that are, I'm not going to say. I don't think anyone asserts that Ramana Maharshi was an avatar, but he was a free soul, but Master was an avatar. He had already finished the story a long time ago. So Swami also commented that, you know, people would see Ramana Maharshi as being more like, as Swami said, now that's what a yogi should be like. You know, so austere and so simple, whereas Master in his jovial acceptance and easygoing ways of the world, people who didn't have the discernment would think that somehow he was less, uh, less elevated in his consciousness because he didn't have any of the accoutrements of it. It's very complicated, doesn't it? The best thing to do is just do your best and don't worry about it. That's my philosophy. And, but Swami makes this um, 
Moreover, Master did not condemn the natural attraction that exists between men and women. Rather, he strove to purify it so that each might learn to see God in the other. You know, this is a very important part of it because very few people are actually really set up to be monastic. It's just, it's not even good for them. Swami says somewhere celibacy isn't really good for a lot of people because it just, it's too much of a strain. Sometimes people have no choice and you just have to take what God gives you. But nonetheless, it's not like inherently this inclination is wrong because for most people, that is how they begin to overcome their egoic selfishness is by the necessity to be close with and to serve and to be involved with someone else. There's very few people, comparatively speaking, who actually don't need that kind of proximity and that kind of compelling um, force that, that, that makes you give up your own desires. One of my friends, who was a longtime devotee before he married and then had two sons, he just said jokingly, he said, I thought I was a generous-hearted guy. He said, until I had children. He said, I had no idea how selfish I was. And I had no idea what real selflessness looked like until I had to raise these boys because that was the point at which it was just like, who cares what I want? It's just absolutely off the table. And because he has a noble nature, he, he was a marvelous father and just went into it wholeheartedly with no resistance at all because he saw that's what he was supposed to do. I used to have a more cynical attitude toward families, but that was immature of me because I didn't understand that without families, most people don't give. And so what we're really here to do is give. And that, that desire that most people have to have a partner and to have a family is God implanted because it really is there because otherwise we'll never learn. So there's a huge difference between actual detachment and fear of involvement. And many people are afraid rather than actually free. I mean, a healthy amount of fear is a good thing because <laughs> it is fearful, fearsome. But uh, that's a, to be afraid is not the same as to be free. And you know, what Swami has created with Ananda where people can m move in and out of different lifestyles is a, is a tremendous benefit at this particular time because you know, it's not like you try the monastery and then you're just lost or you try marriage and if it doesn't work you're lost. It's like, oh well, that's what we try. And um, when one man uh, who, 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 who tried a marriage at Ananda in a very difficult, and it just didn't work at all. Afterwards he described it as my wife, my former wife and I tested out Swami's theory that any two devotees could be happily married to each other. And we discovered that in our case it wasn't true. <laughs> and they'd both, they both, they, they were friends before and they were friends after. He just said, in our case it just didn't turn out to be the way it was. But it was worth trying. And now they both know. You know? I remember one really moody woman. She, moodiness was her salient characteristic. And uh, when she got married, she sort of came to me after a few years and said, essentially, I didn't know I was moody. How could you not have known? Well, she didn't know until she had someone in the house with her who was reflecting it back to her. I mean, it was a hugely important 
learning that she just couldn't get by herself because by herself she always could control it. That's what happens, you see, you're by yourself. You control your environment so much that you think you're controlling your mind but you're actually just controlling your environment. And then you get with someone who makes it impossible for you to control your environment and you discover you don't have control over your mind. And it's self-knowledge, that's what happens. It's not always happy learning, but uh, it's directional, <laughs> and people get to find out. So, Master once described Sister Gyanamata, his most advanced woman disciple, in these words, I have searched her life and found in it not a single sin, even of thought, Sister, as he called her, had been married before she came to him and had born a child. Her name then was Edith Bizet. Once, the master told us, when Mrs. Bizet and her husband were both old, the husband had wanted to go on a journey. He had hesitated to do so, however, because he thought, we are both growing old. What if during my absence she were to... His wife, Sister Gyanamata, spoke firmly on the matter. What is death? Make your journey now if you want to. Um, the act, what she actually said to him, she had come. She had all kinds of health problems, and she was her her life was threatened. She'd had a heart attack or something like that, and he'd had a, a, a trip scheduled, I think, to Europe. He was a prominent professor in in Washington State, and so he was going to cancel his trip. And she says, "What? Are you just going to sit here and watch me watch?" watch to see if I die. Are we going to spend the rest of our lives together while you're just sitting there watching to see if I die? You know, and then, of course not. So he went on with his life. And she actually outlived him. And, and he, he brought her to Master and said, I'm not going to live much longer and she's wanted to be with you for so long. And so he, he established her at Mount Washington and then a year later he passed. And she lived much longer. But it was really, but she was married and had a son. But she was a Jeevan Mukta and she was freed at the end of her life. So it's just, she's a very good example. She said, our union she was plying is internal, eternal. What do momentary parting signify? At her funeral, the master said, I saw her sink into that watchful state of final liberation. The image here was of a wave sinking back into the divine ocean. She attained her freedom through wisdom, Master added. My way has been through joy. So sweet. Master died, I think, six months after her. It's like they were just some kind of a pair, even though it's just very unusual. Any comments or questions on any of them? You know, these, the, the, the teachings in this book, well, in all of Swami's books, but you can find something balanced and clear about every aspect of the spiritual path. I think I mentioned that on Sunday. What Swami has done with the spiritual teachings and what Master has done is just so amazing because you just you never find yourself in a cul-de-sac of some rigid orthodoxy that you have to meet. You, you can always find a place where, at least I have always been able to, where your own reality meets what Master or Swami said and then you you have an actual strong spiritual direction that, that starts um, where you are. Instead of having this picture like the real people who are serious or renunciates and 
I have to shave my head and I have to do all these other things. It's always like here I am. You know, this, this longing for human love, it just, it simply can't be dismissed. I've come to appreciate on a much, I mean, as I've gotten older on the path, I'm, much, I'm so much less rigid than I was when I started. Just, uh, you know, the, the sexual desire is a physical thing, but behind it is that, just that profound longing. And Swami, in his uh, Love Perfected Life Divine novel, that last book that he wrote about soulmates, um, that, that was, well, he, before that he said, every single desire has to be fulfilled and, and the, the desire in the human heart, as he put it, to be loved not only impersonally by God, but personally by another person. He said it's so deep in the human heart that it must mean that there is, a God has a solution for it. But human relationships are not that solution because they just, they always end up feeling a bit of a compromise. But the basic longing has to have a fulfillment and that's why he said that the image of soulmates must be true. Master also said it was, but he said it must be true because God would not plant that longing in the human heart if he didn't also intend to fulfill it. This, and even that comment by Swami was so sympathetic, you know, just so deeply sympathetic. And so we're practicing all the time in our, in our romantic, in our marriages, in our families, with our children. We're just always practicing for that perfect kind of love, both practicing to receive it, practicing to give it, until we finally directionally reach the point where it's, it's satisfied in our relationship with God, but then Master says that soulmate connection will also come in there. It's completely beyond me to understand. Swami ref uh, reflected on it a great deal, but um, you know, he, what I said was the most, one of the more definitive things he said, but for him too it was always this um, fascinating mystery. And then you have that story in Autobiography of a Yogi of Sri Yukteswar taking that monk out on the train. And just, you know, today God's going to give you a gift. And so he sits on the train, he looks over at this other compartment, he sees, presumably it was his soulmate, Swami wrote that somewhere else. You know, just this woman sitting over here and that all that um, restlessness that he felt was completely satisfied. And then the two trains departed. Completely takes away all our strange ideas. I mean, our, our, our more human concepts. Yes, Saranya's behind you, I think. I know. Okay. So usually when we think about looking for a soulmate, we're thinking of someone that you might marry or someone that you, who is you know, around the same age or that kind of thing, what we ordinarily think of as a pair. But it would seem to me that um, that, that wouldn't necessarily be the case, that the soulmate, because if we're talking about souls, then the soul has no age. So the soulmate might be your child, it might be your father, it might be anyone in your environment with whom you're learning how to have that selfless interaction with. Absolutely. I mean, part of the, the reason why Master never talked about soulmates is that everyone immediately turns it into a romantic relationship. But by its very nature, you see, a romantic relationship, and especially for most people, I mean, you, you could have a perfectly chaste romantic rom relationship, but almost always 
it, the people who are thinking that way, there's a huge sexual component. If you're compelled physically, by definition, your consciousness is not refined enough to actually have a soulmate union. But no, it doesn't have to be opposite gender or, or gender-oriented at all, or age-oriented. Absolutely not. It just, Master said, you can have it envisioned that your soulmate can be on another planet. So, so all of those ideas. Of course, Master talks in degrees. See, this is the ultimate, when at the beginning of time, created uh, you know, in pairs and divided and then unified in the end. But Master talked about marriages um, having a, a moving closer and closer to soul union. So he saw it, saw it as directional. You know, some marriages, he said, were between a nice shade of lipstick and an attractive bow tie. You know, you hear a little romantic music, you fall into a mood. He said that's not, he didn't, he didn't consider that marriage. So Master wasn't, he, he didn't object to divorce and remarry. Not frivolously, but he said often people are just, they're not really, there's no soul, there's no soul union. And that to him was not marriage. But the, the more, he, he used Amalita Galakuchi as an example, who apparently was married to a, a brutal man, and one day she simply walked out on him. And that was that. And Master commended her for doing that. And then later, um, the man who played the, who was her accompanist, she married him, and Master said, you know, this, this was a, a true soul union. And he just disregarded the others, not even counting, which was, he wasn't thinking about the social world, he was thinking only about the spiritual. Yes. What is soul union? When what binds you together and draws you together is more elevated and not just economic, sexual, social. You know this person is rich, I need a home. Um, our families like each other, so we're together. We both love to ski. We're, we're just, we love the LA Lakers, we go to all the games, you know, that sort of thing. So that there's just some more refined aspect and more selfless aspect to it. You know, there's a real nobility of giving of spirit. Um, people like to call themselves soulmates with the person that they love very dearly and people say it all the time and there's no reason not to say it because sometimes the sense of union is so intense that you really can't find another word for it. And it may have physical and other external elements but nonetheless there's something about it that so transcends those temporary conditions that there's just another element to it. But many people's relationships are not like that, either because they themselves don't have it in them, you know, they themselves don't have the refinement to have more, or they're, they're wrongly paired. You know, a woman or a man makes a decision for reasons that they later realize were not the best. I remember one man talked about he was very spiritual all his life and he had a brief, very worldly period, and unfortunately that's when he got married. <laughs> you know, so he just married a very materialistic person because for a brief period of time that was where, what he was thinking and he, he couldn't hold the marriage. He was just too materialistic. She had no interest except more money, more home, more this. And there was nothing in it that was uplifting, so you can see it that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not mysterious, it's common sense. And also, 
What also makes it a soul union is the nobility and the selflessness with which people engage in it. So there was a few movies that uh, that were romantic movies that Swami really liked. Um, the original movie of uh, An Affair to Remember, is that the one? That's the one where they're going to meet at the top of the... But not the subsequent versions of it, but the original one. Um, everybody behaved in a very noble manner. You know, these two people meet, they're both committed to someone else. They resolve not to see each other for a year until everything is resolved. You know, then they're going to meet again. And then she, you know, becomes crippled before she could meet him again. And then she doesn't want to burden him, so she withdraws. It's all very um, unselfish. It's not, I want, I'm going to take. The other one he liked was a movie called Random Harvest, which is also, it's a beautiful movie. And again, it's, it's just a very noble human love story. So I mean, it was very moved by, by noble expressions of human love. So that's another way in which um, uh, whatever, however it starts, it can become much deeper. Because when the convenience of it is removed, you know, what do people bring to the relationship at that point? So, all right. Any others? Questions? Human love perfectly expressed, quoting Master. Human love perfectly expressed is almost the same as divine love. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, you contemplate that almost, but still, almost the same, because love is love. God, the reason we're, we can be so selfless with God is because um, the response is so powerful that a person loses the desire. You, you don't want to hold back because it's so much more joyous to give. And, and that's, I mean, that's, that's why one is a karma yogi. That's why we work hard. That's why we do so much and we don't think about what am I getting back in return because it's the joy of giving. And when we love humanity or we love Master's work or we love the Guru and we just give for that. You know, it's hard. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a great blessing that I'm really grateful for to have come to Ananda at a time when we got so little back on a material level. We got so, you know, we were not, we didn't live comfortably, we didn't have any security, we didn't have much income, and you just got to just trust it and just give your whole heart to it. The more materially established Ananda becomes, the more people wish their salary was bigger or their home was more comfortable or their vacations were easier. It's, it's, a, it's a very tricky spot that, you know, we're, we're, we're in. Swami always said prosperity would be Ananda's biggest test, not because of being comfortable or not being able to use the money well. I think we're so creative we would have, it would be a long time before we would stop using the money well. But what happens is, the way Swami put it, creativity is essential, is the, a creative attitude is essential to the devotee, and this is the creative attitude of the devotee. You know, Divine Mother, how can I serve you better? And when you ask that question, you're asking, what, is, what doesn't exist that I can now do? And that's the creativity. It's not a question of being able to paint or dance or sing. It's that you're always looking for a way to do it better, which means that you're making something that isn't there. 
And, and when that attitude is always there, that giving attitude, and, and it, it's, it's um, compelled upon you if you're impoverished. Because if we are impoverished and you're trying to make a success of this spiritual work, you have to always think, how can I do this better? Because we have to think about how can we generate more energy for something else so we can survive. Um, in the early years of Ananda, I used to describe it as a, just a gigantic mom-and-pop store, you know, in which we were all trying to make a success of it and nobody would think about what can I take out of it because if you took it too much out of the, the business, so to speak, the business wouldn't survive and it was your business. So you're always trying to just get along by giving as much as you could. But then when it gets more established and it starts taking care of you, um, the inclination to think, the, the, the necessity to think, how can I serve better, um, the incentive isn't there as much. And as soon as we start, Swami says, as soon as you start thinking about what you can get instead of what you can give, then creativity begins to go down. And when creativity begins to go down, everything begins to atrophy. And that's, I think, what he meant by prosperity being our biggest test. When it, when it can give to us so much, will we still want to give to it for the same, in the same reason, with the same power? Because that's what will ruin Ananda, is when it's a place that people come to get from instead of to give to. And you know, that's, it's nice if it just stays... Jokingly, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I don't know if it was Swami Shivananda. It might have been him. It was some well-known yogi who just always kept his organization on the edge of bankruptcy because he just never felt it would serve them to not be hungry. <laughs> so we'll see. God's doing a pretty good job of that with us, but we're, but we're going bankrupt at a more and more comfortable level. So. Okay. Number 241. Sir, the thought came to me, Walter, when he uttered those last words. If Gyanamata attained liberation, this is a continuation of the one above, where um, Gyanamata attained her freedom through wisdom, Master said, and my way is through joy. And sir, the thought came to me, Swami Kriyananda, when he, Master uttered those last words. If Sister Gyanamata attained liberation, how is it that she didn't have disciples? He'd once told me, as I mentioned earlier, that it is necessary to free six others before one can oneself attain liberation. The master, reading my mind, replied, she had disciples. He didn't elaborate further. It would be well for all devotees to remember, however, that God doesn't want us to find him only for ourselves. The following story which the Master told us conveys this truth dramatically. You know, this whole business of Gyanamata having disciples relates to the very complicated stories and conversations that Swami talks about is if is Master if Master is the last in the line of our gurus, does that mean he's the last guru in this lineage? And Swami makes a very strong distinction between those two points because if there can't be any other gurus who are, if no one else who is a disciple of master can become a guru in his own right, that means that none can be liberated. And that would mean that the teaching is not valid. So that simply can't be the truth. So he tells this story about Gyanamata. In another place where he was discussing this, 
the question was raised, did Gyanamata herself even know who were her disciples? Or did she simply just do everything she could to help those that she felt inclined to help? You know, we have these very rigid pictures in our mind about how this all works out. And it's all based on our ego identification, which projects upon these souls who have no egos the same systems that pertain to us, if, that's, if that makes sense. So the main point is, in all of this, is not... I mean, we joke a lot, you know, the, whenever there's somebody who's particularly difficult, we always try to say, it, it's not one of my six, it must be one of yours. <laughs> or you'll really feel that somebody who is difficult or is outside the normal flow, but somehow there's, you know, whether or not that person is actually one of your six is a different question, but there's a, a sense of responsibility. And what Swami's drawing here is that we can, we're never... We, we're not really on this path for ourselves. We have to always be standing here. And it's not a self-serving thing that you're trying to accumulate your six so you can check it off and get out. <laughs> but it's more that, that simple statement tells you that it's inherent on the spiritual path that you turn and give to others as much as you can of what it is that you have received. In the Festival of Light, when we talk about greater can no love be than this from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God willingly to accept pain and death for the salvation of others we make that statement the next line is this is the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey so we have gone we've had the mission we've had the revolt we've had the quest and the last one is absolute self-sacrifice for the sake of others I mean, not everyone apparently comes back as an avatar, but the fourth and last stage is accepting all of these realities for the sake of others. So that also tells us that right from the beginning, the necessity to always be asking the question, how can I serve? I had, I've, I've spent a lot of time in my life, and especially in the last few months, um, just contemplating how Swamiji related to the people around him and to the world. And he had this complete, well, he had no vrittis. So he was in, in a state of total um, self-mastery at all times. But he never, he never reacted to anybody's um, realities. He, he only responded to it. And he responded always in the same way. He would just, whatever it was, whatever, you know, spectrum on the, on the, on the spectrum of ego stood in front of him, which is, which is us, whatever, wherever we were, he just looked at us very impersonally and had just one question, how can I help? And then with great intuition, he would just try to help. And if it was somebody he knew for many, many years and worked with continuously, it was, it was never rote, it was never automatic, it was never impatient. It was just, here you are today, how can I help you today? And he would just find, try to find a way to help. If it was the taxi driver that he was going to see for five minutes, he would still just, how can I help? And no matter how convoluted or continuous or how many times he'd seen, how many times the person brought to him the same issue, one of the stories in the book about Swamiji, it happens to be one of my favorites. I can't remember what I called it. 
But this woman writes that, you know, Swamiji repeatedly counseled me for years and years on the same issues over and over and over again. But never with, never any sense of, you better straighten up or I'm going to stop helping you. It was just, well, there you are again, and you still look pretty much the same, so let's just kind of work on the same issue until we're finally free of it. I mean, that is such a, at least for me, it's a template that I can at least imagine, and it's a template that I can measure my distance from. You know, it's not one that I can step into, but it gives me a point of reference, you know, for impatience, or, or, or trying to bully someone into a position or lack of compassion. It's just like simple question, how can I help? And whatever it is that you're going through, what's the point of being upset with you for going through it? Gosh, if you didn't have to, you wouldn't be, because you're certainly suffering more than anybody else. And so it's, it's been, really been a wonderful study, yes. Um. <clears throat> I hesitate to say this because I don't remember the um, the God-given um, apparent thinking that sort of led up to this, but I've come to the conclusion at times that the only um, thing, the only worthwhile human interaction, the only thing that's worth spending time giving something, energy to another in any sense whatsoever is to serve the presence of God in them, and nothing else makes any sense whatsoever. Well, that's true. And then how do you serve the presence of God in another person depends on what their reality is, what that might that's be. A, that's a big part of it, a huge yeah. part. So that's where Swami would just be very appropriate. Yeah. The example that I remember vividly, I might have put it in the book, was in Goa, in India. Uh, the Goan taxi driver was complaining enormously about how all the Kashmiris had come down to Goa because the Kashmiris were much better businessmen and more aggressive than the Goans because he was taking us to this Kashmiri shop um, that they were taking all the business and we, we had this taxi driver for several rides and Swami had, had these long conversations with him about Goan handicrafts you know what are natural products what are the things that you all could work on and he, he was just trying to get this man to think creatively rather than complaining about the Kashmiris, to think positively about what they could lift up in response. And it was just so interesting to me. Once again, it was like Swami's bringing up this subject I never really considered, and I, I saw, oh, this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to give him a creative solution instead of then a complaint. And there was no touch of anything else because he wasn't interested in anything else. But it was exactly that. It was, where are you standing, and how can I help you move forward? Interesting. All right, let's take a little break. Five minutes. We are now in number 242. The following story, said Master, happened before my time, but my father was personally acquainted with it. A Maharaja had been excavating a lake on his property, and beneath the mud at the bottom, three yogis were discovered in good condition, seated in the lotus posture. An engineer working on the project estimated that they must have been there at least 300 years. They were in samadhi. To reawaken them to outward consciousness, the Maharaja had someone apply hot 
pokers to their feet. Ooh, finally they succeeded in bringing them back. You should not have done this, they told him severely. We were very near liberation. Now we shall have to be reborn and to continue working toward that goal in new bodies. It was not possible for them to keep their bodies any longer, having been out of them for so long. Yeah. Before dying, they said to the Maharaj, you have committed a serious transgression by disturbing our deep state of communion. You will have to pay the price. In fact, soon after these yogis left their bodies in death, the Maharaj and his whole family died. Yeah, that was his punishment for disturbing the harmony of these yogis' inner communion. On the other hand, the yogis themselves, by being so rudely forced out of their inner state, were paying a price for seeking liberation for themselves alone. Divine Mother didn't want them to merge in the infinite without first helping others too. Now, talk about a weird story. It is so weird. Let's just take one piece of it at a time. Here's the part that I think is really weird. There were three of them together. So like what is, you know, what is that about? Just from, because we think about God realization as being a singular effort, but these three were united in this effort together. And even the yogi who spoke said, now we will have to be reborn. So there's some kind of interplay. I mean, this is spiritual community in another form. The story that is told about the three hermits who the, the bishop came to, to teach them the proper prayers but they forgot the prayers and they were running across the water. But again, it was, it was companions working together for their spiritual liberation. That part of it struck me at some point after having heard the story a number of times that they're working as a team. Isn't that interesting? And then the other part of it, remember when we did the Patanjali series, those of you who were here with that course, Remember we got to Samadhi and there was still about a quarter of the book left? <laughs> and then we had to just go through all those things about what you do after you reach Samadhi? And so this, this other sort of picture that we have in our mind that you're here and you're in delusion and then bingo, it's all over. There's some kind of long, you know, transition of is it the Jivan Mukta going through all those incarnations where you're visualizing all those lifetimes. Um, in a few letters that I saw of Master to Rajasi, he's talking to Rajasi about various things that he can do in his expanded state. You know, just sort of, I, I don't have a clear picture of it, it was just a fragment, but it was like instructions that you can have all these different kinds of experiences and that's what Patanjali talks about that once you're in this elevated state, you just keep working in a wholly different way. Um, Lahiri Mahashaya's life, when he was sitting there all that time meditating, he was, he was doing things with his expanded consciousness and he kept a diary, which just little fragments of it have been brought into English. Mostly I think it's just not time for it to be brought into English. But there's a whole something that happens on the level of consciousness that is very, very active and apparently is very progressive. Now, all of these are so far beyond me, I can only speculate, but that's what these three yogis were doing there. They were almost liberated. But something 
interfered and Master said it was Divine Mother. There was a flaw in their attitude. So even though they thought they were almost free, Divine Mother knew that what they didn't know they were not going to be able to learn in that circumstance. I mean, talking about, you know, not getting married, which is where we started, you know, just as a whole nother level of just um, not participating in the world at all, but just through consciousness finishing the karma that's there. Sri Yukteswar, in the little tiny bit of the holy science that I know about, because I've never really studied that book, um, he talks about progressive stages of purifying the heart, and earlier stages require intense interaction with other people. But then you can reach the point where what you have left that's binding you internally no longer requires interaction. And so these would be these three yogis, but still there are three of them. And then, of course, the horrible fate of the Maharaja. You know, I mean, it, it, why would he feel he needed to bring them out of their samadhi state at all? I mean, it, that was a, like, why would he feel that they couldn't just be left undisturbed? Maybe should have stopped excavating his lake at that point. Or at the very least, just waited, you know, or moved them to a safer place. But instead he... He, he compelled them in a, in a brutal way to come back into their bodies. But what kind of a state of mind are they in that they have to apply hot pokers to their feet to get them back to come in? It's just the whole, the whole story. There's another one that Swami says, one hears a lot of strange things in India. One hears many strange things in India. That's the next line of this particular section. And indeed one does. <laughs> Did you have a question? Somewhat privileged comment, but... Um, it, it is said that uh, when one is advanced consciously, uh, you can incarnate in more than one body. So maybe so those. What if these three guys were the same soul? That's another possibility, yeah. of course. Except he refers to it as we. The yogi himself says we. Well, just to make us understand better. Who knows? It's also it's all too far beyond me. The um, for those of you who've been to Varanasi and been to Shabindu Lahiri's house. Um, he has a very large house uh, a short distance away from where Lahiri Mahashaya's smaller house was. And uh, Shabindu once said to us, have you ever wondered how my family got such a big house? And we hadn't wondered, but now that he brought it up, because, you know, it was a very costly place. But it turned out that, let's see, some wealthy people had the house there, and there was a Shiva temple in the house and the man, the family lived at a distance but had the house in Varanasi there and they hired a pujari to take care of the necessary worship of the, of the deity there um, and then the family at a distance started having one calamity after another and somehow they consulted someone and it turned out the pujari was not taking care of the temple and not taking care of the deity and because of, the, of that neglect of the deity, the bad karma was going to the family over here. So they decided they wanted to shed the responsibility for the house. And they found Shabindu's father, who was the youngest grandson. Shabindu's the great-grandson, isn't he? But anyway, he's a, he was the youngest son, and he was in this other Lahiri household. And so they gave him that house. 
to live in because they didn't want to have to be responsible for the temple anymore. And then Shabindu's family ends up with this house. But just one hears a lot of strange things in India. <laughs> it's all these things are, you know, these are true powers. When I myself, when uh, in Varanasi, in one of our early trips, when our tour guide hijacked the bus, that's how I say it, we always had to have this interplay between our local guides, especially in the early years of our tours, to be able to direct the tour ourselves in in the way that we wanted it to go instead of having them direct it in the way they thought it ought to go. And it was one of those cycles where he, being very proud of his city, wanted to take us to this ancient Durga temple. We had no wish whatsoever to go to that temple. and But we were there, so I was crabby from the beginning. So we were, I was crabby and it, it's known as the monkey temple because Varanasi is overrun with monkeys and because of Ahimsa they can't get rid of the monkeys. So there are lots of monkeys and the, it's, it's covered with monkey poop because that's what monkeys do. And it was just not, to my mind, an uplifted place. And there was this old pujari there who, because I was group leader, group leader is a concept, I was group leader, he kept putting, one of the group leaders, he kept putting this marigold garland on me, but the marigold was past its best cell date. And slightly rotten marigolds have a particular pungent odor that if you go to India you get really used to that smell. So he kept putting this thing on me and I was permeated with the smell of rotten marigolds. And I was, I was not thinking kindly thoughts and I was very rude to the goddess Durga. I was really rude to the goddess Durga. Everybody from America who goes to India hits the wall at a certain point. And that was, I hit the wall at the Durga temple. So I'm walking around with this putrid marigold garland on that I keep taking off and the pujari keeps finding me and putting it back on me. And uh, I'm thinking about the monkeys and I'm not thinking nice thoughts about Durga. And as a consequence, I'm not paying any attention. And I actually walked into the a band of monkeys. I, I divided the band because I wasn't paying attention. And one of the monkeys really didn't like that and he jumped on my back. And I'm told, because no, I remember this part, I, gra I was so mad, I grabbed the monkey, I'm usually very cowardly, I grabbed the monkey, I pulled him off my back and I threw him on the ground and I shouted, get off of me, you filthy thing, like that. And this is in the temple, and this is a big loud thing in the temple. And then the, the monkey, you know, used his teeth on me. Fortunately, I was wearing a skirt, so he, instead of grabbing my body, which he could have, he grabbed my skirt. And then I just, you know, started screaming at him, you know. I think I continued to call him, you filthy thing. Let go, let go, let go, like this. By this time, everybody in the temple is there, you know. <laughs> All the Americans are trying to rescue me and all the priests are in a panic because group leader being attacked by monkeys is not really a good thing at all. Screaming. Yeah, screaming. But, but not in fear at this point, just anger. It's just anger. And I'm pulling at, you know, my skirt and telling him to let go of me. And finally the priest comes over with a stick, but the monkey took a big bite out of the skirt. There was a big hole. I mean, thank God it wasn't my body. Yeah, oh, I was really lucky. And, you know, then everything got straightened out, but instant karma.
there wasn't the slightest doubt in my mind what was going on, which is Durga saying, don't mess with me, honey. I've been here a lot longer than you, and you are just nothing compared to me. It was so clear. You just like, these deities are real, and their power is real. And this was an ancient, holy temple that had been worshipped for centuries, and my you know, disregard of it was not appreciated. It was it was really quite a... I was very, very careful after that. I mean, for every time I've ever gone to India since, I've never let myself get into that. And I, I took that skirt, that was my India dress. For years I wore the same clothes there. And I went up to the to the store and I got a big monkey decal and I, and I put it on the dress and I wore it, you know, I always would wear it and it would, that, that monkey would be there and he would remind me. You know, so when I hear this Shabindu tell the story about the Shiva temple and so on, absolutely. You know, it's just it's just all really real. We 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 um we disregard these things at our peril and especially uh, the sin against the Holy Ghost, really. You know, you just God's presence is there and if you're too arrogant to respond to it, he'll he'll get your attention one way or another. Man, oh man. The other one was not quite so dramatic and it didn't happen to me but um, Carol Bartu that's her name in Seattle she was always late always late 32 people on the bus and she was always late it was late you know so everybody's on the bus waiting for Carol just constantly and uh, it wasn't it wasn't good and so somehow or another we're, we're somewhere I think it must have been Varanasi too because it's another monkey story we're sitting in some temple and, you know, I'm just really having it out with her. Carol, this is just not going to do, you know? You can't have everybody wait for you like that. And I know, I know, I know, I really shouldn't be doing it like this. And this monkey just let loose just all over her back, you know, all over. And it was just like, okay, karma's over. <laughs> you know? I was bad, I'm punished, it's over. <laughs> we just went on from there. And she was never late again. <laughs> It just things happened. She was so, you know, she was easy about it. It was a marvelous moment. And the monkey was your friend. Yeah, that time the monkey was the friend. But she was just, you know, karmic retribution. Okay, shall we go on? And then Swami says, One hears many strange things in India. I've encountered a number of them myself. During my four years there, a friend in Delhi related to me an account that had come out recently concerning an excavation that was just being conducted in Sabzimundi, across the river from where he lived. The workers had come upon the body of a yogi seated in meditation. They, they were able somehow, I hope, but the means used were kinder than in the foregoing story, to revive him to outward consciousness. When he spoke to them, however, they couldn't understand him. A pundit, a Sanskrit scholar, was summoned who said the man was speaking an old form of Sanskrit. The man asked, What yuga is this? They told him it was they told him it was Kali Yuga. He wasn't interested in remaining. He couldn't retain his body after his revival. Before leaving it, however, he said to them, If you dig over there, and he indicated a spot near where they'd found him, you will find the Murti the sacred image I used to worship. He then left his body. They dug where he indicated and found there a sacred murti. What your consciousness would have to be like 
to just go into a state of meditation in which you would gradually be buried by mud and sand and so on and and you would be so what I don't understand is why you have a body at all like what is the relationship between the body and the state of samadhi and it's just way so far outside of anything I could understand but what a story I mean you, you know we sit and meditate and a mosquito lands on your nose or a fly buzzes at your ear and you begin to itch here and you begin to get hungry and the chair is a little uncomfortable and but just imagine not even knowing any of those things it, 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 it's humbling how about let's say it's humbling and it's also just it opens your mind to the marvelous possibilities of life you know we live this little tiny existence and we're so interested in this and interested in that and I think all these things matter so much and yet this whole other thread is there where these people incarnate to do something completely different and they take a body for an entirely different reason with wholly different trajectory of destiny on it and it's I was um, uh, I was reading about Swami being in India in 1995 when he took a seclusion in Rishikesh and we were on a we had an India pilgrimage that year and we went to visit him in this little seclusion house in Rishikesh and we walked through the streets there with him and went to see Swami Chidananda who was still living who was the heir to the head of the Divine Life Society heir to Shivananda's work sort of the equivalent of Swami and uh, Swami was saying in that he said you know walking through the streets of Rishikesh I thought to myself um, in America they would keep the streets cleaner and then he thought and then they would have clean streets (laughs) 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 and he just realized you know like and so you have clean streets so like what does that really actually give you that really matters and he just it's just we get so used to things being a certain way and we actually think it matters but when you measure it against self-realization you have that little story in autobiography of a yogi where master goes back to visit Sri Teshwar and he says you know I want to buy you a new carpet I want to fix up your ashram Sri Teshwar says why you know why would you fix up my ashram what difference does it make and we think well it does make a difference and it did make a difference for Master's world because that's what Sri Yukteswar said, that's your world. Master came to America, he couldn't live in a hovel. As Swamiji said about Ananda too, you have to have a certain level of, of outward refinement or people will not understand how refined your ideas are. And when Swamiji had to trade it in his $75 Air Force surplus car, we went to... We, there was one of the they used to they used to call them the meeting of the ways there were these they used to have these uh, bring all the new age teachers together in these conferences and there was one in San Francisco and Swami came and there was a, 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 a I was going to say a tea party you know some kind of a reception that wasn't for the public but was for all the, the presenters and their little entourages of which I was part and we pulled up in uh, Swami's old Chevrolet which we'd gotten for $75 at a, at a military surplus auction we actually bought two one for parts and one to drive and you know it was an old 
American boat sort of car. And, you know, we park. We were a little late. We parked a distance away, so we had to walk by the Cadillacs and the Rolls Royces and the Mercedes. And, you know, it was, and we'd come in this car. And then Swami said, I have to get a new car. And he said, in America, where money, he said, in India, they would respect me for driving this car. He said, in America, and he put a very interesting phrase, where money is so much easier to come by, they'll think the only reason I would drive a car like this is that there's something wrong with what I'm doing. It was just, it was a completely, so he went out and he bought this sort of, he picked out a really, it was like the silver Ford that always looked like more than it was. <laughs> I mean, it was just a sort of basic car, but somehow the design was such that when you first looked at it, you thought it was a classier car than it really was. Just, I'm going to give you one last car story about Swami before I stop. He, it was, see, when, I think it was after that one died. I think it was maybe the next one or the one after. He, um, he went to look at these cars, and by then he had a lot of sore, his hips were always causing him pain and so on, and he liked to have a really big trunk and a really comfortable car. And so he found this, it was called the Park Sedan or something like that, and he really liked it. It was a really good car for him. It was perfect. But he said, all the people in the brochure look so self-satisfied and proud because they had this car. And he realized that, that it was that kind of car. It was the kind of car that people were proud to own. And very reluctantly, he just decided he, just, he, he couldn't buy a car that people were proud to own. <laughs> so he bought something else instead. But you know, he was very conscious of all those nuances. So what does that have to do with? Oh, that has to do with the fact about how, how you can just have entirely different premise. And it's, it's very good for us because we all have grown up in a certain culture and it's nice to just stand back and realize not only cultural differences, but just how completely different the premises of a yogi can be from the premise of an ordinary person. And try to have the imagination and the courage, regardless of what our lives look like, at least inwardly, you know, to, to have that attitude and not get eaten up uh, by all the superficial considerations that uh, define most people's lives. All right, any comments or thoughts before we... Th this book is, is such a, a, a marvelous parade of stories, isn't it? Go ahead, Karen. I was wondering, <clears throat> on the two stories about the meditating, Yogi. the yogis in samadhi, if um, perhaps they only keep their bodies as a way of... Um, using them as like a, a a transferring station of of higher consciousness, you know, into the into the material realm. Um, I think that's as good an explanation as any. I mean, I think anything we speculate about could be true. These are the times you well, there are other times too, but these are among the times when you wish you could still call Swami, explain this to me. But he. I, you know, sometimes he's answered me when I ask him questions like this with just a sort of eloquent shrug. You know, I don't know who can say what this is all about. It doesn't all fit into neat categories for our little brains. And who can we bury the, the rishis or the, um, or the um, avatars in a sitting position, like Sri Yukteswar? You know, these people weren't dead. Oh. Oh, no, so no, no. Who buried them? Or? Uh, time buried them. Oh. They were just sitting in the forest in Samadhi and eons passed and the level of the earth rose around them. No. Yes. 
Yes, yes, yes. You missed a chapter in there somehow. Yeah, yeah. No, they were, they sat down in samadhi and sufficient time passed that their bodies were buried under layers and layers and layers, hundreds of years. Yeah, odd. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think that'll do it for tonight. Glad we straightened out that little detail. So we just did a couple. We did um, from 240 through 242. Okay.